If you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10? It's page 1103 in the Pew Bibles, and it would be really handy this evening if you were able to see a copy of God's Word. This morning we... uh, we looked at Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch on that desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And we, we used the story in Acts 8 as a basis for reflecting on the importance of personal evangelism. Uh, but one of the aspects of Acts 8 that we didn't highlight or we didn't draw attention to was the increasingly inclusive nature of the church. And in the first half of Acts 8, Samaritans... Of all people, Uh, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as they were sometimes referred to. But in the first half of Acts chapter 8, they were responding to the gospel and being welcomed in. And then in part 2 of chapter 8, we find an Ethiopian, an African coming to faith. And so if you like, the circle widens. And in tonight's text, we come to a major turning point In our journey through the big story of the Bible. Because the circle widens even further. Wrecking comfort zones. And shaking people's prejudices to the core. Gentiles are now potentially in. Or should I say. Even Gentiles are now potentially in. Here's the final verse of our reading for this evening. So then. Even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Inclusive church. And this was a a real surprise to some people. But I wonder who would surprise us in an inclusive church. You fill in the blank. Our actual text for this evening runs from Acts 10 verse 1 right through to Acts 11 verse 18. All 66 verses are intimately connected. It's a a single narrative. It's the actual longest narrative in the whole book of Acts. But what I want to do this evening is I want to break it down into seven scenes. And I really want to just walk you through them, make a few comments on the way. But ultimately, I really just want, as I often say, the text and the story to speak for itself and so that I don't kind of get in the way of that. So in the first scene, we meet Cornelius, the centurion from Caesarea. Three C's. I like that. Uh, But for certain people, his name and his occupation and where he's from already had him blacklisted, judged and boxed. He's clearly a Gentile. That's a Roman family name. He works for the enemy. And he came from an area that was hated by the Jews. And based on these three facts and these three alone, some people's minds would have been made up immediately about him. And it's interesting how your name, your job and your postcode can still say enough to some people in our culture and context. Before there's any possibility that you might be in, you're already definitely out. But the content of verse 2 would have unsettled and confused a certain section of the in crowd where it says this, he and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. In other words, Cornelius' life 
had this sort of vertical and horizontal dimension. There was a reverence for God and a love for others. And in addition, we read, and this again would have stretched some people's thinking even further, we read that Cornelius is granted a vision. He gets a vision from God in which he discovers that his prayers and his generosity have ascended to God. And not only have they ascended to God, but they've been accepted by God. And so God is clearly at work in this man's life, preparing his heart for the next stage of his journey to faith. And key in that pilgrimage is a man named Simon, who's called Peter. And via the vision, Cornelius is told to send for Peter. Which is proof again, if you were here this morning, and this is just to repeat something I said, that God invites human beings to be a link in the chain. That God asks us to partner with him in reaching out to other human beings. And so in Cornelius' life, God uses Peter. And scene two opens at noon on the next day in a place called Joppa, where Peter is heading out onto the roof to pray. And like Cornelius, he receives a vision. And what I love about that is the discovery that God gives visions to those who are in, just like Peter, as well as to those who are not yet in, just like Cornelius. And even today, Many of you will know that you can read about people all around the world who come to faith or begin a journey towards the Christian faith as a result of a God-given vision or dream. We hear those stories. People who are in being given visions, people who are not yet in being given visions. And Peter comes to this vision, it says, with his stomach rumbling. He's hungry. And in his trance... He sees what seems to be a large sheet carrying potential sustenance. There are four-footed animals, there are reptiles, there are birds. And then comes what to Peter would have seemed like an instruction from left field. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat, verse 13. And the reason that that would have seemed absolutely bizarre to him was because some animals on that sheet weren't kosher. That is, they were unclean, and therefore they were unacceptable for Jews to eat, which prompts Peter's understandable reaction when he says, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Although that's not exactly Peter's reaction. Look at verse 14, because what he actually says is, Surely not, Lord. Which at one level is a contradiction. You see, to call God Lord, and then question his instructions doesn't add up. This is clearly a unique and confusing moment for Peter. His head is spinning. His thinking is being stimulated. Although as I've said, or I've thought about Peter's uh, response during the week, I wonder, are there times whenever I express similar sentiments? Whenever I read uncomfortable instructions and commands from God, and I actually say, surely not, Lord. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of some of those instructions and commands that that God has issued to you. And we claim God to be Lord of our lives. And yet there are times when he says things like, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And you say, surely not, Lord. And there's a contradiction there. Because God, if he is Lord of our lives, then we've just got to follow through on our obedience to him. 
But here in in scene two, the voice from the vision comes back at him. And there's no doubt that Peter's perception of God and what you can do and can't do as a Christian is being challenged. Because the voice says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And just in case there's any chance that Peter, when he comes around from this trance-like state, thinks that he might have misunderstood or misheard anything, it says in verse 16 that this all happened three times. Just to reinforce it. Three times. And before we move on to the next scene, I think it's really important to note where Peter was whenever God spoke to him. Now, I don't mean where Peter was physically, as in on a roof in Joppa. But I think it's worth noting that Peter was in the place of prayer whenever God spoke powerfully into his life. And it was into that context of intentional focus where his thoughts were turned towards God that Peter then was able to hear what God needed to say to him. As Peter spoke in prayer to God, God spoke to Peter. And that is a reality of scripture. And I'm sure there are many here this evening who would agree with this. That hearing from God is far more likely, it's far more probable whenever you're in the place of prayer. That whenever the lines of communication, if you like, are officially open, whenever you're in dialogue with God in prayer, it's far more likely that you will hear God speak into your life. I'm not suggesting that God only speaks into our lives we're in that place But in terms of discerning the voice of God and hearing what he wants us to hear, the place of prayer is a much more conducive environment to detecting the divine whisper than many others. Prayer gets us in tune with God and therefore receptive to his voice. And I think it's a really important principle here. That it's when we are in prayer that God often speaks into our lives. And scene three begins at verse 17. It's a really short scene, but Peter is trying his best. He's woken up from the trance, woken up from seeing this vision. And he's trying his best to process what he's just experienced. And as he mulls it over, three men show up. Three men show up at the house. And Peter is told, it says, by the Holy Spirit to go with these three men. And the one thing that's absolutely clear from this entire narrative, this entire incident is that God is right at the centre of it. God is controlling things supernaturally via angels, via visions, and via his Holy Spirit. And in the fourth scene, the two key human beings come together. Peter meets Cornelius. And in verse 28, look at it with me, you quickly realise that Peter has in fact started to process the meaning of the vision. Because he says to the gathered crowd, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or visit them. So the barriers between these two groups are clearly substantial. But Peter continues, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone. Now note it's not just any food. So Peter's been able to process what this vision means. God has shown me that I should not call anyone unclean. And this seismic shift in Peter's thinking is incredibly significant. How he once thought about and viewed other people, people who were different from him, has been radically overhauled. The typical Jewish distinctions that he had come to accept that separated people have been dismantled before his very eyes and rendered void once and for all. This is truly a big story-defining moment. 
And to follow up this startling statement of verse 28, we come to a core phrase that reveals a fundamental feature of God's character that we must never forget and never distort. I now realize, says Peter, how true it is that God does not show favoritism. It's verse 34. And wrapped up in that statement, and it is a profound statement, it is a big story-changing moment. But wrapped up in that is an attitude of repentance from Peter. There is clearly a sense of confession and humility contained in that. He says, I now realize, which him clearly implies that he once held an alternative perspective. He used to believe that God showed favoritism. He definitely did. But not anymore. Peter accepts and repents of past prejudices. And therefore, in terms of a conversion experience, it's not only Cornelius whose life is dramatically changed in this story. Peter's is. There is a sense in which Peter is converted here. And for every Christian living in a divided society, where bigotry is never far from the surface, this remains a live issue. Because you see, when some people come to faith in, a, in Jesus Christ, in a country like Northern Ireland, for example, but there are many others, the challenge to deal with prejudice towards certain other people can be substantial. In fact, someone has noted that prejudice is often one of the last things that is touched by the process of sanctification. In other words, letting go of strongly held, deeply ingrained negative feelings towards another people group and individuals from within another community, it can be really hard for any Christian. Never mind a new one who recognizes the call to become more and more like Jesus in their attitude of loving others and all people. And Peter's story here in Acts 10 reveals that even those who have been Christians for some time need God's help in dealing with this issue. As Ajit Fernando writes in his commentary about Acts, he says, even mature Christian leaders occasionally need a major paradigm shift in order to come into line with God's thinking. Peter was a major Christian leader. But God had to shift his thinking here. And as Christians prejudice and bigotry can often raise their ugly heads. But cultivating an attitude of repentance whenever they do will always ensure that we allow God's spirit to keep our wrong thoughts, our skewed perceptions and our rash judgments in check. We need to be a people who cultivate an attitude of repentance whenever prejudice raises its head. Let's move on. In scene five, we then read Peter's speech. It's this speech that he offers to a large gathering who have assembled at Cornelius' house. And the speech runs from verse 34 right through to 43. Now there will have already been, those of you who have been in this journey with us, there will have already been some brilliant speeches and acts. This one's no exception. Because after that stunning discovery regarding favoritism, Peter declares that God accepts everyone. Now, not full stop. There's no hint of universalism here. But everyone, it says, from every nation who fears God and does what is right. Key. Key. In other words, faith and action. 
belief and behavior, head, heart, hands. It's all got to go together. And Peter goes on, because that's, in a sense, maybe not quite enough on the issue. Because as ever, the centrality of Jesus Christ is essential. And in verse 36, you listen as Peter explains how God's message contained the good news of peace or the good news of reconciliation or the good news of salvation. How? Through Jesus Christ. And although he begins this little section by saying that this message was sent to the people of Israel, so you could think, well, hold on, that's a bit exclusive. Look at how he finishes that sentence. The good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And so Peter here extends the message to include Gentiles. And Peter then goes on, you can read it there, he goes on then to summarize the ministry of Jesus. He talks about his baptism, he talks about his anointing, he talks about his actions, he talks about his activity, he talks about how God was with Jesus in everything he did, and then he turns the audience's attention to the cross and the tomb. He speaks of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How people killed him. How God raised him from the dead. And how people can actually testify to this fact. Because there were human witnesses. There were people who subsequently, and read it there, subsequently ate and drank with Jesus. And Peter would have known that this was an important inclusion in this specific speech. Because the idea of bodily resurrection would have been an alien concept to a Gentile like Cornelius. And Peter's sermon isn't quite over because next he talks about the commission that the disciples received from the risen Christ. The commission to go and preach, to go and proclaim good news to the people. And again, note, it's to the people. It's inclusive. It's not to certain people groups. It's to people. They were to testify, Peter says, that Jesus is the what? He's the judge of the living and the dead. And as we've said before, judgment is never a popular topic. But you cannot talk about Jesus without ever referring to this core aspect of who he is and what he will do. Judgment is inevitable. We'll all face it, including Cornelius and Peter. And Jesus will be our judge. And this, according to Peter here, is clearly part of the commission that's been given to the disciples. You've got to tell people. That Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. And it is an uncomfortable, I realise, an unpopular feature of our faith. But unless we tell people that, there is a sense in which we're selling them short. But as Peter reaches the end of his sermon, he's not finished yet. He finishes on a high. Because there is hope. Our message, the Christian gospel, is not just a message of judgment. I mean, there's no point just talking about Jesus as judge and leaving it at that There is salvation, there is rescue, there is renewal, there is truly good news written all over the gospel. Because look at verse 43, because he says, Everyone, and again, the all-inclusive, all-embracing language, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And if you were here a couple of Sunday mornings ago, referred to it this morning, you'll remember what Tim reminded us of, that salvation, according to Acts 4, is found in no one else, for there is no name under heaven by which we must be saved. And Peter kind of finishes his sermon there, although actually if you look at verse 44, you get the sense that he wasn't so much finished as he got interrupted. But it's the kind of interruption that anyone sharing the gospel would love to experience, because while he's still speaking, it says the Holy Spirit fell on every single person crammed into Cornelius' house. 
Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit in scene 6. But before we leave that speech, here's what I really want to encourage you to do. And this, this connects to something I said this morning. Please take away those 10 verses from 34 to 43 as a brilliant blueprint for what you could say or should say whenever you get a chance to talk to somebody about Jesus. Whenever somebody is keen to discover more about Jesus, here is a great blueprint. Here is a key, or here are a number of key aspects that I believe we should in some way draw attention to. Talk about the great things Jesus did. Talk about him. Talk about the cross. Talk about his resurrection. Talk about the commission he's left to us, his disciples. It's why we are sharing Jesus with others. We've been asked to do it, invited to do it, commanded to do it, instructed to do it, called to do it. Tell people that. Talk to them about Jesus as judge. Which I know isn't popular. Talk to people about that. But also remember to talk about the forgiveness that's available for those who believe in his name. And then if you like, that's it. That's enough, or at least it would seem that's enough. Because whenever Peter did that, the Holy Spirit was poured out on these people. The people who came with Peter, it says, were just astonished. The people who came with Peter, who were Jews... Watch these events unfold before their eyes and they are shocked as they listen to the Gentiles speaking in tongues, it says, and praising God. And Peter's logic is simple. Look at verse 47. They have received the Holy Spirit, says Peter, just as we did. And therefore he wastes no time in arranging their baptism because as far as Peter's concerned, they're definitely in And Peter then says, stays for a few days. But the problem with Peter staying in Caesarea for a few days is that it gives time for the grapevine to kick in. And so word filters back about events in this place. And as you can imagine, there are people who are not happy. Those who up to now were very clear who was in and who was out. And it's always very interesting that it's those who are in are always very quick to determine those who are out. And so when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, there's a group of people who are not amused and he gets it in the neck. As pioneers often do. And in scene 7, Peter is criticised, according to verse 2, for going to Cornelius' house and for eating with the occupants. And in response to the criticism, Peter explains everything that just happened up the road. And he finishes off with this great comment, verse 17. So, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, the Holy Spirit, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And whenever Peter explains all that happened up the road, the critics are silenced. In fact, they're won over, or at least they are for now. And they praise God by saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance unto life. Now, for those of you, and I know that's many of you, those of you who know the rest of the story, 
will be aware that not everyone has undergone the permanent change of conviction that Peter has. That this acceptance of Gentiles is for some of the in crowd only a temporary thing. Whenever they actually see the number of Gentiles who are coming into the church, whenever they actually realize the implications of the Gentiles coming into the church, they rise up again in protest. But that's for another day. For us this evening, I kind of hope that this narrative which we have broken down into seven scenes reminds us of the need to keep the church as inclusive as God intends it to be. God shows no favoritism. Salvation is for everyone, not just a select group of insiders. The kingdom of heaven is open to all and God accepts all who believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. All other distinctions, all other dividing lines disappear or at least they become unimportant. Our calling is to take the good news to everyone, to lay aside our prejudice and our bigotry, to lay aside our preconceived ideas and to embrace those who God embraces. We exist for him, we exist for others and therefore we must remember this is never our church. This is God's church. And therefore we welcome all who truly believe. Because to quote you too on Friday night at Glastonbury, in the kingdom come, then all the colours will bleed into one. See, because in Christ, as the Apostle Paul would later articulate, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so please, God, may the bleeding continue. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for how you often uh, challenge our thinking. And you often reveal that you are not a God who shows favoritism. That yours is an inclusive church. And forgive us and forgive me, God, at times whenever I put labels on people. And whenever I make judgments about who's in and who's out. And God, thank you for this uh, journey that you took Peter on and for how it changed the story. And thank you, God, that you are still in the business of reaching out, or still in the process, business wrong word, still in the process of reaching out to men and women all across our world with the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. And so may we go from here this week and share Jesus with whoever we come into contact with. And may your Holy Spirit be poured out on so many people. In Jesus' name we pray and ask this. Amen.